0: As we're going through the series, you know, there's a number of, of parts and pieces, and some of these messages are two parts, and this is one of those interesting two-part messages where Brad took the first part last week, and I'm taking the second part this week, uh, and we'll go on to new parts next week. And so last week, Brad really opens up with that question of trying to answer, uh, of how can I be sure the Bible is true? Well, it's just a small question, right? How can I be sure the Bible is true? It's very important. We've talked about this from time to time, where we say, okay, the Bible is it's either God's words or it's something that I should just... It's just a total waste of time and I should just avoid it. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. So we got to figure out, as ah, this is something to go after, is it true? Why is it true? And, and Brad really walked us into the first two marks of authenticity of the Bible. of How can we know that the Bible is true? He started there with experience, which of course is important. It's Kind of saying, hey, when, when I read the Bible... Does what it says, and when I I do what it says, does it come to pass in my life? When I go after God as he says I should and the ways that I should in the Bible, does it come to pass in my life? And I think Brad shared a number of great examples. And in fact, as part of this series, and within the next couple months, we're going to have a couple Sundays that are going to be devoted entirely to people's testimony, of people giving testimony of, here's what I have learned from the Bible and how it has come to pass in my life. And I'm excited for those weeks as we get to them. I was thinking for myself, uh, there's a number of examples, but one is there's an idea where the Bible tells us when we seek after God, we will be filled with a peace that surpasses all understanding understanding and I think about my life and I think about all of the things that I've experienced and the challenges and the hardships and relational things and all these things going on and I go yet in the midst of all of that, just like the Bible says, I've experienced a peace that surpasses all understanding. So I go, wow, there is an experience there. But as Brad mentioned last week, hey, we can't just live on experience because people can have experiences in different things. And so that's just one piece. And so he talked also about science. Or do we see that, yeah, observations of the world confirm biblical descriptions. I so appreciate it. he had a number of examples about astronomy. I've, been, uh, I've had the privilege of... of tutoring, of teaching a class of uh, eighth grade students this fall. I'm going to be doing that this year. Just one day a week. It's a ton of fun. It's uh, nine students. It's highly discussion based. But this fall, we're going through astronomy. That's our science subject that we're going through. And that idea of, oh, seeing these the the progressive, uh, as things have progressed and the things that we've gotten to see. And Brad talked about the number of stars and how at one point in the past, and I can confirm what he said, because we've learned this in our astronomy class, that they thought, oh, there's just, you know, a couple thousand stars. And now we understand there's billions of stars. And so when God is talking to Abraham and he says, hey, your descendants will be as many as the stars, like, God knew what the number was. And it was way bigger than those couple thousand he was talking about then. And so I appreciate that. And there's so many more examples. I'm always glad and Brad and I were always glad to point you to um, different resources that give information on those sort of things. But today we're going to pick up there where Brad left off. We got through experience. We got through science. And we're going to look at three more ways I think we can authenticate the truth for the Bible. So the first one, is a big one, is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ authenticates the Bible. It shows us that the Bible is true. Now, Christians, those of us who are Christians, most of us probably here today, would say, yeah, Jesus Christ is God. I'm convinced of that as a fact, that Jesus Christ is God. But you know, there's this popular idea out there in the culture, maybe you've come across it, maybe you haven't, and it's this idea of, oh, you know what? Jesus was really, he was just misunderstood, right? Jesus didn't really claim to be God. That's like other people sort of said that about him. You can't really see. He didn't ever say, I am God, so he's not really God, right? Jesus was just misunderstood. That's this idea, but it's it's just false right it's an idea that doesn't have any merit we're going to look at that a little bit here a few verses from the bible that tell us about what jesus himself said the first one Matthew chapter 16 verse 15 jesus is walking with his disciples and he asks them well who do the people say that i am and they're kind of like well you know, some people say you're a prophet and some people say you're a good teacher and he goes said to them who do you say that i am he asked them directly, on the spot, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. It's pretty bold, right? Peter says, hey, you are God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Blessed are you. See, right there, Jesus is having this conversation, and he could have stopped Peter and said, no, 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 no. no, no. I am not God, I'm not the Son of God, I'm just a guy, I'm just a man, I'm just like you. But instead he says, right you are, Peter. Blessed are you for having that belief. So when somebody says, oh, Jesus didn't claim to be God, well, here he is, right here, claiming it. Another example, John chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus had been talking, and it says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It's very clear. If Jesus wasn't equating himself with God, they wouldn't have been so upset at him. But they were really upset because they were like, wait, this guy's saying that he's God. Well, how was he saying that he's God? Another example in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You go, "What, what does that mean? Well, they knew what it means. They picked up stones to throw at him. They knew this was blasphemy. Why? Because he said, I am. And you go, what is I am? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, God says, hey, Moses, you tell them, I am sent you. God says, my name is I am. Jesus says, my name is I am. And everyone who was listening knew at that moment that Jesus was saying that he is God. There's many more examples like this in the New Testament. So Jesus claimed to be God, and you go, okay, that's great. How do we know that he is God, and he's not just some guy who who said that he was God? How do we know that? Well, that's a good question. And I think one way we can look at that is to say, well, what are the attributes of God, and did Jesus fulfill those attributes of God? So we'll look at those. We've, we've looked at a number of these attributes uh, over the time in, in different series here, but the first one here is we saw that, hey, for God to be God, God has to know everything. God is all-knowing. So is Jesus all-knowing? Does the Bible tell us that Jesus is all-knowing? John chapter 16, verse 30, his disciples said, now we know that you know all things... I do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You know all things. Is Jesus all knowing? The disciples said he was. <clears throat> we also know that God is all present. He's in all places at all times. He's everywhere. Is Jesus everywhere? Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, how could he be there if he's not all present? Jesus Jesus is all present. He fulfills that characteristic of God. God is all powerful. He's got all the power in the world, all the ability in the world. Is Jesus? Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not some authority, not most authority, not some good authority. All. Sounds a lot like all powerful. Jesus is all powerful. He fills that quality of God. God God is eternal, right? God had no beginning, God has no end. What about Jesus? John chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As you read on in John chapter 1, you see that John is using the term word to refer to Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is eternal. We know that God is unchanging. He does not change. Is Jesus unchanging? Hebrews 13, 8. It's very simple. Jesus Christ is the same when? Yesterday, today, and forever. That covers all the bases, right? He's not changing. He doesn't say he's going to change the day after. Nope, it's forever. God is also perfectly righteous. He is perfectly righteous. Is Jesus perfectly righteous? John chapter 8. Jesus says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? And nobody could because he had no sin. Because he was perfectly righteous. God is perfectly righteous. So Jesus is perfectly righteous. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus fulfills all of these important characteristics of God. That makes him God. If you can be, if you can show, hey, I feel the qualities of God, then you're showing that you are God. And he did that. And frankly, we could say, well, I don't know. But you know what? There's no testimony. There's no evidence out there that contradicts this. This is the evidence that we have. It points us to say, hey, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And the second way we can do that is we can see that Jesus forgave sin. Jesus showed up on the earth and he forgave people their sins. Now, you're like, well, I I forgive sins, Craig. You know, what's the big deal about that? I forgive sins. And I go, right, I do too. Right? If, If I have a conflict with somebody and they sin against me, I have that ability to go to them and say, hey, friend, I forgive you for your sin. But if that friend goes and sins against somebody else, I can't forgive that sin because I'm not even part of that equation. Well, When we think about generally, and we think about sin, what is sin? Sin is breaking God's commands. It's breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's standards for us. So when we sin, we're sinning against somebody else. But who are we really sinning against? God. And you sin against God. Well, I can't forgive your sin against God unless I'm God. So Jesus said, I forgive sin. He forgave sin. We can see that in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus has got a paralytic man there, and he says, hey, I forgive your sins. And they're going, wait, how can you forgive sins? And he goes, well, because I'm God. He said, to prove that I'm God, stand up and walk. And the man stands up and walks. He heals him right there. Jesus had the power to forgive sin, and I think we would all agree only a perfect, righteous God can forgive sin. Jesus did it. So therefore, all of this evidence points us clearly towards seeing that, yeah, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we go, okay, so how does that connect to the truth value of the Bible? Okay, so Jesus is God. How does that connect to the truth value of the Bible? Well, what did Jesus say about the Bible? Matthew 5.18, he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus believed, and he stated, and he valued the truth of the Bible. For reference, that was one reference. I'll give you several more there on the screen. In all of these places, it's recorded Jesus validating the truth of the Bible. And did you know, not only did Jesus say, hey, the Bible is true, the scripture is true, God's word is true, Jesus quoted from the Bible nearly 80 times that we have recorded, coming from these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Malachi. 80 times Jesus quoted. Why would he quote from something he didn't think was true? He thought it was true. Furthermore, his followers wrote the New Testament. In the entire New Testament, there are over 200 quotes of the Old Testament. So his followers followed in his footsteps and said, he sees that the scripture is true, and so we see that the scripture is true. Therefore, if Jesus is God and Jesus said that the Bible is God's word, then we can conclude that the Bible is truth. It's truth from God for us. That's a conclusion we can make. So we saw there's experience, there's science, and Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the fourth one. The fourth mark is miracles. Miracles. Why do miraculous events authenticate the Bible? Why? Why would that be the case? Oh, something something neat happened. Why does that authenticate? Well, there we've got the definition of what a miracle is. On the screen, it says a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural and scientific laws and is therefore the work of a divine agency. So, if there are miracles in the Bible, it gives us confirmation. That the divine authority, God, is behind it. If it's in there, then it is. And so today we're going to look at some miracles. Did you know there's roughly about 40 miracles? 40 miracles in the New Testament. Some of them are mentioned a couple times in different places. About 40 different miracles, which is pretty cool. We'll just look at three of them today. The first one is this time where Jesus got together in this crowd and they were all very hungry. And they didn't have anything to eat. And he took food and he he turned it into food and fed the crowd. We can read the passage here from Matthew chapter 14. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. Right there in like panic mode. We can't feed these people. Somebody's going to keel over here. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. You go, whoa, that's a big deal. So I thought, okay, how big of a deal is this? Let's do a little bit of math this morning, because everybody loves math. And so let's start with the number we have there, which is 5,000 men. Now it says there's others there, but let's start with just the 5,000 men. 5,000 men. That's a lot of people. I mean, there'll be a bunch more of those down there uh, at Mile High Stadium today, but let's take 5,000 of them work with those. And let's say each conservatively eats maybe a a six inch sub's worth of food, of bread and fish. You know, you get a little six inch hoagie, you cut it open, you put a hunk of fish in there, and you go, all right, I got my six inch sub. We'll just sort of assume that's there. Okay, so I have to assume doing my math, that's got like a three inch diameter, right? It's about six inches. A six inch sub is about six inches long, unless they're ripping you off. But we'll just say they're not ripping you off, right? The total volume is about 42 cubic inches per sandwich you take 42 cubic inches you multiply that by 5,000 you get 210,000 cubic inches which is about 730 cubic feet you go well what's that so this closet over here it's roughly about 10 feet by 10 feet by 7 feet high so imagine this whole closet stuffed to the brim with sub sandwiches And then you probably feed 5,000 men with that, right? You go, okay, but there was these women and there was these children and some of those dudes, I know I got two teenage boys, a six-inch sub ain't going to cut it. People are eating more than that, right? So you're looking at two to three or more times than that. And it says, they all ate and were satisfied. So it wasn't like, everybody got a little scrap of bread. No, they all ate and were satisfied. You want a foot and a half of sub? You got a foot and a half sub. Where's all that food go? How could you fake it? There's no way to fake this. We're talking about like a tractor trailer full of food somewhere out in the desolate wilderness where jesus is talking to these people right i was thinking about like this picture they're like where's it go you can't have it like it would have pulled up and they would've been like jesus fed the masses with the truck from subway <laughs> He didn't do that. There's no place to put the supplies. There's no place to put the food. There were way too many witnesses of this who could have just been like, he didn't feed us. He, he pulled everything out of the fridge. It was catered by Qdoba or something. I don't know. And as if to prove that it's not a fluke, guess what? One chapter later in Matthew, he does the same thing again. He fed 5,000, then he feeds another 4,000. What a miracle. There's no other way to describe it. You can't fake this. You can't fake it. Second miracle we can look at today is when Jesus walked on the water. You may remember this story. I'll read it to you here from Matthew chapter 14. They'd been, you know, he'd been teaching, and then it's like, okay, the disciples take off across the lake, and he stays to pray, and it gets a little stormy, and then Jesus showed up. The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The disciples saw him walking on the sea, as you might expect. They were terrified, (laughs) and they said, It's a ghost! I don't know what I would have said. That's probably the PG version of what they said, right? And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he goes on and he gets into the boat with them. You go, that is a feat of magic. That is a feat of magic, right? And so I thought of this guy here. You're looking, I don't know if you can see, I apologize. This is sort of an old picture. Uh, this is a magician, an illusionist named Andre Cole. Has anyone here ever heard of Andre Cole? Anyone did? He had a profound influence on my life. Uh, he is a Christian illusionist. You go, that seems interesting, but yeah, he's really cool. And he's gone around, he's, I think he's in his 80s now, but when I was a kid, he came to the church I was part of, and he put on this presentation... And he did all these really cool illusions. And this is one of them where he's like levitating. And he kind of goes through this ring. And he's like, there's another one where he does walk on water. He's got this tank. And he like stands on the way. It was amazing. But he says, he's the first one to say, I'm using magic. I'm using illusion. I'm not really doing this. And so he's written some books. And he, part of his presentation, he talks about like, you know, Jesus couldn't really have done this. Right. One of the things he, he mentions is he says, you know, at one point I was, they asked me to speak at a convention of illusionists, which sounds like a really interesting <laughs> convention to me. And they, they had said, hey, you know what? It's at this, like, there's a lake and a beach, so why don't you set up an illusion where you get in a boat, and you get out of the boat, and you either walk to the land or you walk to another boat. And he was like, okay. And he, like, worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and he finally was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he also says, he, he has these illusions, and he's gone around, he's been to like 100-some countries. He works a lot with Campus Crusade and other other organizations. He carries around five tons of equipment <laughs> to do these illusions. So he does one where he stands and he walks on water, and it like, takes five tons of equipment to make that happen in this very controlled environment and controlled lighting and all sorts of things. His illusions are amazing. And we have these large-scale illusions. Some of you are probably maybe more familiar with people like David Copperfield and, and others who have done those things. And you go, yeah, oh yeah, we have those. We have those illusions. Guess what? Nobody did any of those until the late 19th century. Right? 1900 years after Jesus was around is when somebody finally decided, hey, we can put together these illusions. So I want you to imagine the first century... And the kind of technology they had then. The first century technology. I want you to imagine a large lake. I've been there. The Sea of Galilee is not this tiny pond. It is a big thing. You can't control that environment. You can't control where people are going to be. You can't control the weather. You might think, oh, I could probably, like, we could work something out where I'm walking on glass, but the water's got to be, like, perfectly still or something. doesn't work. It was a stormy sea, right? The storm was going on. Even with today's technology, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it, right? And so you can look at this and you go, "Wow, that seems really miraculous." But the skeptic and some of us might say, "Okay, so those disciples—they were in on it. They just all sort of told this story and all made it up. And it's just—it wasn't really. It didn't really happen. They're the only witnesses, and they're just in on it." And I go, "Well, I suppose that's possible." But you realize these same disciples went to their death. Because they held to believing that this happened, that God, that Jesus was God, and he did divine miracles like this? I'm sorry, if I was in on a lie about somebody walking on the water, and it was like, you're either going to die, or say it didn't happen, I'd be like, that didn't happen. (laughs) Right? That's how I I would roll. I don't know how you would. I think it's highly unlikely that they would do that. Others might say, hey, these guys, maybe they just uh, sort of hallucinated. They hallucinated and they saw some kind of vision. They thought they saw Jesus walking on the water. And I go, uh, you think all of these guys saw the same vision? (laughs) When somebody sees a vision and somebody else sees a vision, they usually see totally different things. Like, I saw rabbits walking on the water. You know, I don't know, you see different stuff. Utterly unlikely as to be impossible that that is the case. So I look at this and I go, there's another miracle. A third miracle we could look at is the resurrection. Jesus' own resurrection. And this is a miracle. Why? Because it doesn't happen. Death is final, death is the end. That's it. You die, you're dead, it's over. Now, there's a whole lot of arguments. You ever want to dive into something and say, let's figure out if the resurrection happened or not. The arguments out there are numerous. They're well documented. They're easily available. And I could talk for hours and hours and hours about them. I'll give you three in about a minute here. Three reasons. One, if Jesus was tortured and executed as described, and it seems very clear that he was, there was no way he survived it. He did indeed die. There was no like, well, he just kind of swooned, or he just kind of fainted, or he just kind of got wounded, but he he got better, right? That didn't happen. He died. The Romans were experts at execution, at making sure people were dead. They knew how to torture and kill people, and they did it. It's very clear that that happened and we have no evidence whatsoever to suggest the story was made up or embellished. The second thing is that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. The evidence again is absolutely overwhelming. Again, I encourage you go look it up. The evidence is overwhelming and archaeology has repeatedly affirmed all the details of this story. Other skeptical explanations. Uh, arise about this and I was reading some of them as I was doing research but they're so flimsy and they're so speculative they're like well maybe this and that and that and this and that and that and that and this and so it was fake and you go well you just put your faith in all of these things for which there's no evidence to get to this answer that you wanted I'm just looking at the evidence that's there and it seems very clear that the tomb was empty the third thing we can see is that Jesus was alive After his execution, he died, the tomb was empty, he was seen alive. How do we know that? Well, stuff's written down. It got written down. 1 Corinthians 15, there is a creed mentioned there that hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus and has been accurately and reliably dated from even secular scholars back to the time of the disciples. There is a ton of evidence supporting the historicity of the creed and of Jesus' appearance. You know, Jesus appears in the the Gospels nine times. He's recorded in nine different scenarios appearing. There's many references in Acts as well. There's so much well-documented evidence. Again, there's so much research. There's so many conclusions. It seems clear to me that Jesus rose from the dead. And so there's three miracles, and those are just three of the 40 that are recorded about Jesus. And so what's my conclusion? What is our conclusion? I think it's that the Bible records historical miracles. And those events are miraculous because they lack any other natural explanation. And that's what we would expect. If there is a book from the supernatural power of God, then it would have evidence in it of him working supernaturally. Our fifth and final mark of biblical authenticity is prophecy. Prophecy. The idea of somebody says something and it comes to pass later. And you go, so what? So what? A lot of books have prophecy. I think the Quran probably has prophecy. And Nostradamus wrote down a bunch of prophecies. So what if there's prophecy in the Bible? The Bible sees its own prophecy fulfilled. That's what makes it different. The Bible's truth is validated because it contains predictions made at several historical points which are later fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It makes these predictions at different times in history, and later they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's an old argument that says, oh, no, no. Things were embellished later to make it look like Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And that is an argument that holds no water. It's been fully debunked. If anyone ever tries to tell you that, you can say, nope, that's not true. And just be sure that it's not true, because it's not. And you can look it up if you need to. You know, there's an estimated 48, 48 prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus, that are fulfilled in Jesus. 48. Scholars believe 48. Now, some may say more, some may say less. I don't know. But there was a guy, this guy, Peter Stoner was his name, kind of an interesting name. Guy wrote a book kind of in the mid-20th century called Science Speaks. And he looked at a number of things, but one of the things, one of his chapters was about prophecy. And he was looking at the mathematics of prophecy being fulfilled. And he analyzed these probabilities, and I'm going to go through eight of them today, because I think it's interesting to look at eight of these prophecies. The first one, <clears throat> from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, You, O Bethlehem, Ephratheth, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The point of this prophecy was to say that, hey... The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who is promised, who has been promised in other places, he is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is this dinky, tiny little town. He wasn't, oh, born in New York or born in Jerusalem, is was born in this tiny little town, which, by the way, like that picture says, that's a picture of Bethlehem, is still to this day a real verified place. It's not made up, it's not on the continent of Atlantis or anything like that. It's a real place. Micah wrote this prophecy, by the way, as it says up there, about 800 BC. So about 800 years before Jesus was born, Micah wrote this prophecy. So Peter Stoner and all these things, he and his team of people put together some estimated prophecies at the time the book was written, maybe I think it was like 50 years ago. His estimated probability that somebody would be born in Bethlehem is one out of about 280,000. And that's a very conservative. All of these are very conservative numbers. Most of them are reduced by a factor of 10. Right? So it's probably 10 times less likely, but these are what he said. So we'll go with his numbers here. He estimates that's the probability. Second prophecy we can look at, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I, God, send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me clearly a prophecy about the Christ having a forerunner, someone who would come and say, prepare the way for the Lord. And who was that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. There's a prophecy that says, here's this guy, he's going to come before the Lord. This prophecy was written by Malachi about 450 years before Jesus was born. The estimated probability of like, well, could all like some people in the world could find somebody to speak and be their forerunner, I suppose that 's the case. We could say maybe about one out of a thousand people seems like a very conservative number to me. Probably higher than that. Third prophecy we can look at from Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, written about 500 years before Jesus. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the Christ will enter Jerusalem as a leader, riding on a donkey foal, which to me seems kind of weirdly specific. What does that even mean? I don't know. Maybe there was some meaning to that. Probably not a real thing that just people would just do all the time. We don't see that having ever happened before. But you could look at the probability and say, well, somebody could go there and find a donkey, colt, and get on it and ride it. So maybe one out of a hundred people would have that ability to do that, which I, I still think that's too high. Whatever, that's what he says. So we'll move on to the fourth one, again from Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 6. If one, if one asks him, what are these wounds between your hands? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. We understand this prophecy to be pointing that the Christ will be wounded in his hands due to a friend's betrayal, and we know that, that happened to Jesus because Judas betrayed him. The estimated probability for this is one out of a thousand. Maybe one out of a thousand people could have their friend betray them and cause wounds in their hands, right? Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wa- as my wages 30 pieces of silver. This is a prophecy saying that Christ will be betrayed for a price of 30 pieces of silver, which, as we know, came to pass in Jesus. The estimated probability of that is, again, about one in a thousand, according to this author. The next one, the Lord said to me, then Zechariah, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So it says, hey, the Christ, he's going to be betrayed and the money will be returned to God's house and end up in the possession of a potter. And what happened? Judas takes the money to betray Christ. He betrays him. He feels guilty. He comes back. They won't take the money. He throws it into the house of God and they go, what should we do with this? I don't know. They gather it up and they buy a field from a potter. So who gets the money? The potter. Seems oddly specific again. The number attached to that is one in a hundred thousand. I still go, isn't it one in a million? But hey, we'll go with one in a hundred thousand. That's fine. Seventh prophecy, Isaiah 53, written also about 800 years before Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we see from this one specifically, it says that Christ will not defend himself when on trial. And we know Jesus didn't do that. This chapter is very interesting in Isaiah. For a long time, they didn't have record of this chapter of the Old Testament dating before Christ. And people, scholars would read it and say, wow, this really seems to point, this whole chapter seems to point so closely to Jesus. And it seems to line up, this must have been added after Jesus. And then, in the 20th century, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls date to 100 years, a couple hundred years before Jesus. They have these exact words. So this is true. This was from 800 B.C. The Christ will not defend himself when on trial. Jesus didn't do that. The probability of that is one and a thousand. On to the eighth and the final prophecy we'll look at this morning. Psalm chapter 22 verse 16 says, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 600 years before Christ we see they say that the Christ will die by having his hands and feet pierced. And we know that happened to Jesus. But we have to remember... Crucifixion was not invented for at least 500 more years until those brutal, brutal Romans showed up and figured out the way to torture and execute people. The probability estimated at this is about 1 in 10,000. Now, how do we determine the probability of all these coming true in one man? It's fairly simple math. You multiply the fractions together. There you see them on the screen, and you already know that's going to be a tiny number, and it is a tiny number, 1 over 1 times 10 to the 28th. So put 28 zeros after a one. That's how many it is. Now we have to adjust this because we say, well, we can't count all the people who lived before the prophecies. We can take them out. It wasn't supposed to apply to them. So we knock that number down. When this book was written, it was about one over one times 10 to the 17th. Better estimates today, it's probably more like one over one times 10 to the 18th. But we'll just go with the number that was when the book was written, which is one out of 100 quadrillion, I think that number is. That's a lot of zeros. And you go, well, what does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? Well, Peter Stoner in his book, he describes the state of Texas. Anybody here from Texas? Just me. I'm actually not from Texas. My parents are from Texas. He goes, goes, here's Texas. Let's take Texas, and you're going to take Texas, and you're going to get silver dollars. I brought a little silver dollar right here. We're going to take Texas, and we're going to cover it with silver dollars. Texas is pretty big, right? Probably three times the state of Colorado, something like that, three and a half times the state of Colorado. Cover it with this. Oh, but not just cover it. Two feet deep with these. It's a lot of silver dollars. That's 100 quadrillion. One of them is going to have a mark on it. Then you're gonna take one man and he's gonna you're gonna blindfold them and you say, You can like get in a helicopter or something, you can fly anywhere you want in the state. And you reach down and you reach into that and you pull out one silver dollar. And your chance of pulling out the one with the mark on it is the same as those eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man. You go, that's kind of a big deal, right? You go Basically, you're saying that's impossible. (laughs) That would be my reaction to that. I go, that's crazy. But you might say, okay, I don't know I believe you, but I go, we got to remember that it wasn't that one person wrote down these prophecies and then somebody fulfilled it. Remember, these are prophecies written by a number of authors over different centuries. We have to understand that someone didn't just say, well, here's how he fulfilled all the prophecies. The, the, the fulfillments are written down by different authors who have different viewpoints and are looking at things differently. And remember, this is only eight of the 48 prophecies that we say, hey, these point to Jesus. These are only eight, eight of them. And again, even though these are conservative numbers, I think most of them are reduced by a factor of 10. It still ends up covering the state of Texas, and I go, fine. Let's, let's say we missed it by half. How about half the state of Texas? Did that make it any more likely that you're going to pick out that silver dollar? How about we're way off, and let's say it's just a single county in Texas? Probably unlikely. I almost think if we said, hey, let's, let's put two feet worth of silver dollars in this room, and you've got to go pick one out we'd probably say that's basically impossible, almost impossible, right? I think in the face of all this, the Bible is saying, it's it's God saying to us, he's saying, look, here's that silver dollar. I got it for you. I got it for you. And I think it's amazing. And when I go, wow, that is amazing. I go, that is the kind of thing I would expect from a book book from the creator of the universe, who is all-powerful, that he would say, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it, I'm going to line it all out, I'm going to make it so that it's basically impossible, and then I'm going to make it happen. And that's, how, that's what God did. It's what we would expect from the Bible. So, we go back to our original question, how do I know the Bible is true? Well, again, here's those five points, again, just to review. There's our experience. In other words, what the Bible says comes to pass in my life as I obey its words of instruction. We can look at science. Observations of the universe confirm descriptions of the universe written in the Bible long before those observations were even made. Jesus Christ. Evidence points us to conclude that he is the incarnate God. And he tells us that the Bible is true. There are miracles. Many recorded events in the Bible bear out as historical facts, yet have no rational explanation outside of supernatural acts by God. And then lastly, we're just talking about prophecy. Recorded predictions of the Bible were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And I would add, in a way that is statistically and mathematically impossible. And yet it was done. And so my conclusion is that the Bible is true. In the face of all of that, I go, well, I think the Bible is true. And then I go a step further and I say, wow, not only is it true, but it is the greatest treasure imaginable. Do you sense that? Do you believe that in your life, that the Bible is the greatest treasure imaginable? It is true. It is the word of God that has come from him. What a treasure for us. And so you might say, okay, all right, fine. Fine. I get it. But what will the Bible do for me? That could be your next question. You go, okay, so the Bible is true, but what is it going to do for me? You talk about experience, but what is it going to do for me? And I say, that is a great question. That is a great question. And again, as we say every week, we encourage you to ask difficult and honest questions and go after honest answers. Pursue those answers thoughtfully. And so we're going to do that as a church. And that's my segue into next week. And the next two weeks, we're going to answer that question. What are the benefits of the Bible? What are the benefits for me of embracing this book, this treasure from God? So with that, I'll close it for this morning. I'll close in prayer, and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, I'm so thankful that we don't just have to look at like a front page of the Bible that would just say this is true and have to take it at face value. That we can look at all of these different facets, these different things that are really in some ways outside the Bible. Things inside the Bible that point us to rationally conclude there is no way anyone could make this up. This is a book that comes from you this is a book that is true because you are the perfect God, the creator of the universe, and you've made this book for us. God, I pray in my own life that you would help help weigh me down with that, Lord. I want to have a greater love and a greater pursuit of your word. Lord, so I pray that for myself. I pray that for all those who are here who are listening. Lord, help us to be people of the book. Help us to be people of the book because it's true and because it's from you. Guide us as we go out from here today, Lord. Help us to cling to your truth by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.